0: Let's go through every single package installed on a Linux install DVD. Specifically, Slackware 14.2. Of course, these are all open source packages that I'm talking about on this show, so they probably can still apply to you, even if you're not running Slackware and even if you're not running Linux. These are open source packages, so you can download the source code and run them on any computer, whether you're running Linux, Mac, Windows, BSD, doesn't matter. You can learn probably something from this episode. So let's get started. Today we're talking about strace and subversion. Let's do that in exactly that order because that's how they're listed on the website. So let's look at what we're up against here with strace by looking in slash var slash log slash packages. That wasn't the right one. There we go. Uh, slash strace dash 4.11 is what is the version that we have. So, with Slackware 14.2. So, there there might be some differences between the new S-Trace, you know, latest release, and what Slackware ships with, but it will be minor and things that can be resolved just from a quick glance at the man page. It looks like S-Trace ships with three separate binaries. I'm probably not going to get to all three. S-Trace, S-Trace-Graph, S-Trace-Log-Merge. Those are the three. But, Really, I think the, the the most interesting one is just S-Trace itself. I, I, I'm sure the other two are very useful, but I don't know much about them. So, I mean, I don't actually know that much about S-Trace either, I should say. I don't use S-Trace on a regular basis. I've used it before to do the thing that it does, which I guess we'll talk about momentarily here. But it, it's not one of those tools that I personally rely on, simply because I don't, you know, it's just one of those... It's a realm of activity that I just don't do on a day-to-day basis, personally. So I would, I'd be pers, I'd be perfectly happy to use strace on a daily basis if that's what I did. Okay, so strace is a diagnostic, debugging, and instructional user space utility for Linux. That's straight off of their website, strace.io. It is used to monitor and tamper with interactions between processes and the Linux kernel, which include system calls, signal deliveries, and changes of process state. And then it it later uh, specifies or or highlights the fact that the operation of strace is made possible by the kernel feature known as ptrace. It's neither here nor there, but I thought I'd mention it because they mention it. And it's kind of good to know that that, that strace is very tightly bound with the Linux kernel. And I don't believe that that's entirely unique. You know, other other operating systems have other methods of, of detecting similar information. It's just important to know that strace happens to be tightly bound with ptrace. We've talked about processes before in previous episodes. We've talked about commands like pid of and pgrep and ps, all of those, those sort of process-related commands. S-trace is a way to kind of take a PID, a process ID, and, well, obviously trace it. And and you can do that a couple of different ways. I mean, maybe the maybe a super easy way would just be to do S-trace and then a command, like L-S. That's a really interesting one to do, too, because it, it actually involves a lot more than you might think, um, and yet it is kind of kind of brief. In fact, I wonder if it would even be better, and it might, this could be better, maybe, maybe not. I'm going to make a directory in my demo directory called s-demo, and then I'm going to go into that directory, cd tilde slash demo slash s-trace demo, and then I'm going to just touch foo. Then I'm going to do s-trace ls. Yeah, maybe that's, maybe that's, it doesn't really cut it down that much, anyway. From the output, you see things like exec ve parentheses quote user bin ls and then in brackets ls and some more information about that. Uh, it talks about a file that it's accessing, which is prefixed by access parentheses quote slash Etsy slash ld dot so dot preload r o k and open, etsy, let, uh, ld.so.cache, fstat, mmap, and then close, and then open, lib64, libcap.so.2. So you're getting a lot of information from this, just about sort of the, the journey that your computer has to take in order to execute an ls command. And eventually, after you get Past all the the basics, and there there are a lot of basics. So you do have to scroll quite a lot to to get past it all. But once you get past all of that, you you start finding things like open on dollar uh, on a, a quote a dot close quote. So it's opening the current location, and then it gets an fstat, and it get it uh, gets some information, and then it where what am I looking for? Here we go. And then there's a write w r i t e Write one foo, uh, backslash, uh, what is it, backslash? Yeah, backslash n. So that's the part of the program where it is writing the string foo, followed by a new line character, back out to standard n, back out to your terminal. And in fact, if you just, if I go to my home directory, where there's a lot more stuff, and I do an s trace ls, then I get that, all of that information, but then at the end, I see, I don't know, a good 10 or 12 lines of writes, while it is describing how it is writing information back out to my terminal, and it's it's showing me the character's album, backslash T, backslash T, cinema, backslash T, backslash T, um, and so on. All the different, obviously that's A, and then C, and then somewhere in here there's other things like Ansible, and App, and Arduino, and ArtKit, and Audiograph, and Bin, and Bitmap, and so on. So... That is literally what's happening when you're running that command. I don't know if that's necessarily the the typical use case of it. I mean, for I guess a for a for a command, I guess that's a, a pretty likely use case. That would make sense. But for a graphical application, that doesn't make quite as much sense. But we could do, for instance, uh, if I start, let's just start KWrite. It's a graphical application. KWrite, and I'll just leave that window there, and I'll do a PID of kWrite. tells me that that's a 4431. That's the process ID of the thing that I just launched, kWrite. Process ID is 4431. So what if I did like an S-trace of dash P for PID. There's no long version of that. There's no dash dash PID. It's just all of the options in S-trace are single letters. So, strace space dash p space, what's the pit of? It's a 4431 KWrite. So, I do that, and it says the process 4431 has been attached, uh, restart syscall, resuming interruption poll, uh, and then I'm switching back to KWrite to make it the active application, and now I'm getting a bunch of output, like lots and lots of output. And if I click on a button, uh, in, in KWrite, like a, on a menu, or a, on the open icon, I just get a bunch more app uh, um activity. So, yeah, you can get all kinds of information. I I might even argue that it's too much information. There's a lot of information there. So, I'm going to I'm going to cancel that operation and instead I'm going to try to filter out maybe things. So, imagine this. Imagine that you've just written that you that you're working on an application and that I have to take a sip of coffee first, actually. Uh, that was good. Okay, so imagine you're working on an application. Uh, you're you're writing it maybe in in cute and could be PyCute, could be C plus plus cute, could be whatever other front end cute has these days. You're writing it in cute. And everything's working fine. You you open the application, it opens, you create a new file, uh, it it creates a new file for you on disk and opens it in your application. You work on the thing a little bit, you save the data back to disk. Everything's working perfectly. It's really exciting. And you've tested that time and time and again, and then all of a sudden you decide one day that uh, instead of creating a new file, you should really finally try opening an old file that you've already created, because come to think of it, you haven't tested that. That's the kind of thing that when you're testing an application, you will find yourself, at least in my experience, you will find yourself falling into patterns of what you believe are are very important and reasonable tests. And a lot of times these patterns are defined by the thing that you were trying to make work. You know, so y- y- everything seems to be working except that one thing, or maybe nothing's working yet. And, and you think, well, the first thing I need to try to try to do is make sure that I can just create a new document. Like that's, that's the first thing. I just I gotta be able to do that in this application. And so you've hyper focus on that because you have to like that. That's what you need to get. That's the first step, but then all of your tests become wrapped up around. Okay, does a new document get created successfully in the application, and is that reflected on the hard drive? Once you establish that, that's great. And technically speaking, your tests should then sort of deprioritize that, because that works now, and we only have to check that once. But instead, you think that that's your primary test. And so every single time you rebuild your application, like, your test of that application is, well, let's see if creating a new document works, or, or whatever. Um and and you completely forget that there is a you know completely different process for closing a document and clearing out the buffer so that it looks like the file has been closed uh, you forget that there is a separate process for opening a document and reading the data into your application and so on so anyway that was just commentary about test you know QA test design and um so you're you're writing this thing, you've got the new document thing working, and so you decide to try to open an application. And the moment you open you click the open button, you go select the file, and it crashes. Your whole application just shuts down, bang, gone. What could have happened? So you try it again, and you're not really sure what's going on, and at that point you could use S trace potentially to your benefit. You could also go back and look at your code, um, but even that sometimes can be a little bit confusing because there there are sometimes things that you didn't write like it's part of the framework so you're not really aware of what exactly happens when you click that open button you know what you're telling cute to do when that icon is clicked you know that there's some kind of call that you are telling cute to make when you click that button as opposed to this other button but you don't know what is actually involved in in that abstraction, because cute just handles that for you. So, in a sense, you know, you have the source code of Qt, you could go look at the Qt source code, but assuming that they know what they're doing, which generally big projects like that are, are pretty well, you know, you, you probably didn't find a bug in Qt just because your little application didn't open a file correctly. So... Maybe you're looking at your source code, you can't quite figure out what the problem is. You need a, a different view of this problem. S-trace can be that different view for you. And the way that you can get that view is S-trace, or, or a, a, a you can sort of zoom in or focus in on a certain thing, is S-trace-p for PID 4431, because that's the kwrite instance that we're looking at. And then I'm going to do dash E for uh, expression, I think it is, and then open. Let's say, I think that's correct. Yeah, it is. Okay, so now I'm going to bring K right to the front again. And interestingly, I'm not getting a bunch of output. Like last time, when I I just brought K right to into focus to the front, there was a bunch of output. And this time, that's not happening. So in fact, even if I could type hello. World here, I got a little bit of activity here from from typing into K right I got about let's see two four, six, eight, ten, twelve, fourteen, call it twenty lines of text, and it was mostly about what icons it was using where it was refreshing and um yeah, really, it seems to be all about icons, so that's kind of interesting. So that was Hello World. Now, if I click the Open button, you can imagine there's going to be a lot more going on there, and indeed there is. Uh, lots and lots of lines from this clicking of the Open button, and and you get to see everything that it's doing, and it's doing a lot more than you might think just just from clicking the Open button, which of course tells the the cute framework to set up a to to present a file chooser. Window and now that's all cute. You didn't write that. You wrote nothing about that. You might have put in some attributes, like, well, what's the default folder? What what by default? What kind of files are we going to look for? Should we filter the files by default, or will we just show all? So you might have set some things, but but generally speaking, yeah, you you didn't you didn't do a whole whole lot here. So that's informative. Uh, and then I can open a file. I will open. This YAML file here into a window, which actually spawns a new Kwrite window. That's kind of an interesting thing to take note of. And once again, there's just a bunch of open data about what files it actually accessed to to gather the information that I that I re- just requested. And it doesn't have to be. I'm going to close that window. It doesn't have to be open. You can do lots of other of of other um, expressions. And they're listed in the man page. So there's open, obviously, there's write, there's, uh, read, write, signal, raw, verbose. That's not a, that's a qualifier. Um, there it is. Open, stat, chamod, uh, unlink. Yeah, lots of different things that you can look at f- with, with S-trace and kind of filter down what, what you are, what you think you're interested in. You can also not get all of this into, into your standard output. So, you could instead do an S trace, a full S trace even, and then instead of just hitting return, do a dash O, I guess, for output, and I guess I'll just call it out dot trace. I I guess that's silly. I should have called it k write trace, but whatever. And then I've got um I've got k write open, I can type into it, do all kinds of things, I can undo a bunch of times, I can open a new file, and eventually I could quit K writes and I could quit s trace or oh, actually it detached itself so it, I didn't even have to quit it and then I can look at out dot trace and get all of that output that I generated and it's quite a lot and I could scrub through that if I knew what I was looking for or I could you know like grep through it uh, I could I could just I could I could just review it myself whatever it, it's a lot of output especially unfiltered it's a lot of output but it's super interesting stuff especially if you're trying to sort of gain a better understanding of what exactly happens when when code runs on a computer and and i I really do think i mean i don't know what your sort of baseline assumptions are Uh, i think i think probably most of us have a a certain degree of out of sight out of mind blinders on about what happens i mean i i'm under no illusion that computers are simple and that you know things that 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 they're just sitting idle. I understand that there's a lot of processes happening that I'm not aware of. I mean, anyone who's ever launched top or htop or whatever you use, y- you understand that there's a lot going on or PS for that matter. And even, even using trace as I've used it here is, is a little bit naive and assumes that, that K write does constrain itself to just one PID, which isn't, isn't correct. So if you want to get the bigger picture, you can do something like, uh, s, well, let's just launch a new, a new instance of kWrite first, I guess. And I'll just do it from the terminal for, for ease of, of use. So kWrite and then ampersand, of course, returns me to my prompt. But before returning me to my prompt, it tells me the PID that I just launched, which is 5026 tw- in this case. So now I'm going to do strace-p 5026. Actually, you know what? I need to be in the, directory that I created for this demo, because this is actually going to create a lot of files, so that's a fair warning to you. If you try this at home, you're going to want to just kind of make sure that you have a a space for these files that you're about to produce. So strace-p5026-tt or-ttt, it's the timestamp. It it prefixes all of the information that it's about to write with a timestamp t t gives you i don't know down to the seconds and then t t t three t's gives you down to the milliseconds i think, and then dash f f which um i don't see these stupid short options i just can't stand them dash f f what does f f stand for oh it means if the dash o file name option is in effect maybe e f f there's two f's there effect each process's trace is. Written to file name .pid, where pid is the numeric process of uh, process ID of each process. Okay, well that that's I don't know how clearly that was written, but I think you'll get the idea here. So dash -tt for time, dash -ff for whatever, and then dash -o for output. And I'll just do the the, the term kwrite because that makes sense. That's what we're tracing. It, it could be anything though. It could be my trace. It could be penguin but I'm just going to do kwrite, because that makes sense. And then I'll hit return. I don't get any output on my terminal, but I'll type in a little hello world message here, uh, and then I will open a file. And actually, as I open the file, it by default, kwrite takes you to the current directory from which you launched kwrite. So I'm in my demo directory now, and I see already that I've got kwrite.5026, kwrite.5027, and kwrite.5030. So already, just from opening... J- just from, from typing Hello World and clicking Open, I've got three different PID log files here. I'll go to my home directory, I'll find a text file of some sort. Here is an XML file. I've opened it in KWrite. Man, KWrite is nice. It's got those folding. It's got co- code folding. Just the k- the KDE text editors are just so nice. It's really kind of criminal that I don't use them more often. They are really nice. Okay, so there's a an XML file. So now I've got two KWrite windows open. Um, let's, I guess, close this old one, and then I'll make some really quick changes here to this one file, and I'll even save a change. How's that for something different? And finally, I'm going to let's close it and then actually quit. And so now S-Trace is finished. It's it it, deta- it, it unattaches from the from the PID. If I do an ls I have a grand total of let me do an ls dash one pipe it to w c dash l I've got fifteen files here for just what was that like fifteen seconds of of k write interaction, and each of those files contains a log of of the s trace now that it's kind of weirdly inconvenient to have everything split out like that possibly, so if you want to view it all as one Document you can do strace dash log dash merge so that's that third binary that got installed with strace strace dash log dash merge and then I believe I just do the name like the the string of the the file prefix as it were so remember I called all of my log files kwrite so I'm gonna do strace dash log dash merge space kwrite. Had I named all of my log out my log files, penguin or my trace or something like that, then I would be doing strace log merge my trace or strace log merge penguin whatever. But I'm calling it kwrite, so I'm just I'm specifying that because I don't want you to get confused with like am I am I invoking kwrite and and or, no I'm not I'm I'm just telling strace log merge to look for the files called k-w-r-i-t-e dot a PID number and concatenate, or not concatenate them, interleave them. And that's why the dash-t-t option, the time code, was important, because with the dash-t-t option, s-trace log merge knows how to sequence all of those files. Now, after you press return, if you're dealing with just a couple of files, I mean, this is what 15 files of maybe 15 to 30 seconds of interaction, and it it there's enough of sort of a hesitation to make me think, oh, I must have done it wrong. But no, actually, I've done it right. It just does take a moment. And then it spits all of those log files back out into your terminal in timestamp sequence. So regardless of the file name, and it does, it does prefix each line with the PID number, so you do get a sense of which file, file that is from, and you get a sense of the timestamp, and the the full sequence of everything that it, and how it happened and, and in what file it happened, so that's a really really nice one. I mean, you can imagine the awk script you would have to write in order to make that happen, and it would be it would be non trivial. So the fact that that's just included here for free is is quite nice. You, you'd probably I imagine want to dump it back out into another file, so you would probably want to do a, a redirection. And just have all of this sequenced into some big sort of master file or something like that. But this is, um, this by default, it just spits it out in your terminal and you can look at it and it's, it's all in order and it's really nice. Okay, so I don't know how to use strace graph and there's no documentation for it on, on my system. I could, I could go out into the internet and look and try to figure out what the strace graph does and how to use it, but I just, I'm, with a tool like this, I just feel like if they don't tell me how to use a component, I'm just not going to bother looking it up because I, I don't use S Trace all that often. Um, so I've, I've, th- this is it. This is the end of my S Trace segment. I, I, I know nothing more than what I've just told you. So I, I think I've probably given you an idea of the potential here. At least I've given you maybe an imaginary use case. You're testing some software it's crashing reliably on a certain type of of, act, of of action that you can kind of imagine maybe that's a call to a specific library or maybe that's a call to a specific well i guess it would be a, a library but you know, you know maybe that's a system call that's that's causing me to crash or maybe it's a specific um library that i have installed that that didn't get caught during compilation but it's like out of date or something or you know something's going on you can use S-Trace to potentially find out what that thing might be. It might not solve your problem. It might not help you focus in on what's causing the issue. There are other tools as well. Strace I don't think anyone would say was the, the only way of debugging an application. But it is certainly um, useful uh, for, for getting insight into how you, an executable and the kernel are interacting. I think it's time for coffee. Yeah, I think it's time for coffee. Let's go get coffee. We'll come back and talk about subversion. <music> Delicious coffee, absolutely amazing coffee this morning. I am uh, glad to be enjoying it with you, dear listener. Uh, speaking of dear listeners, there was some listener feedback here, which um, which got me thinking. I'm only going to do half of this listener feedback because uh, the person, it's Hacker Defo, and he created or he. Um, He he snuck in two topics into one, uh, which is fair. That's not a critique. That's just saying I'm going to do half because one half of his feedback involves a topic that I was going to cover in a dedicated episode anyway, and so I might as well save that for later. So the part that I can talk about right now is this. He says, you mentioned Dave, that's Hacker Public Radio Dave Morris, you mentioned Dave mentioning about rcs's automagic version numbering system i don't know how useful that can that can be as it bumps every little change made to a file by 1 it can be useful to maybe monitor a number of commits made to a certain file, but beyond that, I don't know how useful it would be. If you want to implement something like that in Git, the simplest method would be this. In a pre-commit hook, add the following snippet. And he's got hashbang slash bin slash sh, git log dash dash one line grab, not grab, pipe, wc dash l redirect version underscore number, and then git add version number. And so what that does is it, 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 lists how many uh, how many uh, entries there are in the log counts each line because it's a dash dash one line so you just one line per entry you get the the line count and it pipes out to a, a file called version underscore number and then it adds version number to to your staging area and then and then commits everything in the staging area so um that's an interesting concept I like it it's it's super simple and 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 easy. It got me thinking, though, and I, I kind of... I, I re- At first I thought, yeah, this is a really good point. Um, it, it doesn't seem like that would be very useful to get an increment every single time you made any change. Like, that's crazy. But then I thought, you know, I don't know if that is crazy, actually. I mean, first of all, we have to acknowledge that most of us fall into a certain... Um, an emotional response to version numbers. And I know that's almost a cliche because you hear about things like, you know, Firefox incrementing their, you know, bumping up their their release number back several years ago. Um, they suddenly hit something like, um, you know, I don't know, what are we on right, right now, 92 or 94 or something like that. I mean, I remember the days when we were on Firefox, you know, 6 or something or 2. I, actually, apparently I don't remember because I can't actually remember the, the version scheme. But the, when Chrome came out and it had these huge numbers, like Chrome 23, Chrome 34, and, and so Firefox, in response, upped their their version n- numbering because for whatever reason, a lot of us look at version numbers and think that a, a higher number is better, and even if it's not the same application. It's ridiculous, but I think that that we all kind of have to admit that we do it. Um, And even if we don't, I don't actually feel like I do. I understand that applications are different from each other. And that if one says it's version 33 and the other one says it's version 3, that doesn't matter. That's not a reflection on the 3 being slower than the 23 or whatever I said. However, what I do think we do, even if we don't even if we can sort of separate ourselves away from major version numbers like that i feel like we do have a kind of a certain sense that well version numbers are precious you don't want to you don't want to just hand them out like candy i mean we only have so many right we only have an infinite number of version numbers so we don't want to just waste them and i i feel like we don't really need to have that we don't need to think that we we could just acknowledge that there are infinite numbers and we could version number things as high and as as minutely as we want. And uh, if you if you're familiar with semantic versioning, I'm I'm vaguely fa- I mean I'm familiar with the concept. I, I don't sit around thinking about it all day. Although I did a couple of days ago because of this email. Um, so if you go to semver s e m v e r dot Org. It it explains it quite succinctly, uh, and that is that the schema for a, a sensible schema for version numbering is major, minor, and patch. So you get your major version, and then you got your minor version, and then you got a patch number. The major indicates that you've made an incompatible API change. So incrementing the major version means that if someone tries to do something with version 2 and you're on version then you've just released version 3 then you need to know that because advice given for version 3 will not work on 2 and 2 will not work on 3 possibly even like data files won't open on version 3 whereas they will open on version 2 that sort of thing like big big deals although specifically they say they just call it an incompatible api change so there's going to be an application interface that people need to be aware of, if that major version has bumped up, then there's been a major change to that API. The minor version is when you add functionality in a backwards compatible manner. So you've added something, but someone on a lower version number, they just won't have access to that thing. Or or they will if someone ports it back to their to a different version. But generally speaking, they won't have access to that thing. But their application will still work the same way, and the, the advice for their application will still apply, the advice to that application will still apply to them, even though they're 10 versions behind, it's just that they, it's just a minor version, so it's it's still essentially the same, there's just some features that their version will be lacking, and then there's the patch version, which you make when backwards compatible bug fixes are made, meaning that, I mean, it's a patch, so it's it's a fix to something that was wrong. It is not considered a, a an additional feature. It's just fixing, I don't know, a typo or 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 the you know the, the the color that the icon changes when they click it or something like that. And and that's perfectly it's just a, a change to a couple of lines of code that are just completely swappable for older versions of code. You wouldn't even have to download really the whole code base again, you could just get like, well, I guess that's true of any change, but you know what I mean? Like, it's not a big, not a big change. It's small changes to very specific places. So in theory, the patch number could just be ridiculous. Like you could be on on version 2.3.558. And that's fine, because really, the patch version doesn't matter. It's more of a it is a ticker. It it's just counting the changes that have been made since someone said, Okay, this is released now. Version one dot two is released, so it's one dot dot two dot zero. And then oh, we had a typo. Well we'll fix that typo. Now it's one dot two dot one. But you could still survive on one dot two dot zero perfectly happily. So I guess what I'm saying is why not? Why not have the version number just increment with every little change? I don't know, I think there's an argument for, for that to ex- be, be exactly um, what we do. So there's, there's that thought. And I think that's everything for the email that I can go into right now. If I go any, any further down that email chain, or that, that message, I will be talking about a completely different topic for probably half an hour. And I don't want to do that, because we have subversion to discuss. All right. So Subversion so is a version control system, just like Git or Mercurial, well not just like, but you know, it is similar to Git and Mercurial and CVS and RCS, I guess. So it's designed to be that sort of, you know, a code repository where developers can go to get to get code that they want to hack on to make changes to the code, and then to submit it for, for, for merging into the, the, the main code base. There are a couple of different commands within Subversion. I'm not going to cover them all, because some of them are pretty specialized. Um, even this one, for instance, svn-admin. svn-admin is the one that, that helps you administer an svn repository. And, I don't feel like administering an SVN repository it's a lot more complex than administering a Git repository on the surface it's pretty similar you do an svn admin and you create you can create a an empty uh, essentially a bare repository that's I mean in Git terms it would be a bare repository so you have you have things like uh you know you have folders like database and hooks and and changes and and files and so on but you're not meant to ever interact directly with it it's a it is a thing that you are meant to place onto a server and people then sort of talk to that instance that repository through svn client commands such as svn yeah so i should mention svn is subversion that subversion the command is svn that's the command so, um, subversion so is like the project name. SVN is the actual command. Uh, SVN admin is the administrative command. In order to run a SVN repository, it, it, as far as I know, it has to be sitting on top of an HTTP server, which isn't impossible for me to implement, but it's just a little bit more work than I want to do for this because, um... I'm not going to use subversion in real life, really. So, I mean, I will. I, I've used it. I have used it now with with some projects that I've uh, submitted uh, patches to, but but I, I, I don't intend to to use it often. SVN, again, as far as I know, and if if someone else has more experience with it, then I'm happy to to revise my my commentary here. But as as far as I know, SVN is a centralized model. That's the the idea behind SVN is that you have an SVN repository that is the the main the, the the trunk that is that that's the repository that is the final the buck stops there everything goes to it that is it that's the copy of the repository the idea of Git is that there is no central repository and even though it is quite trivial to make a bare repository on a server and then give people access to it through ssh that isn't ever meant to be the only copy of the repository in fact quite the contrary the, the one of the one of the strengths of git is that it is distributed it's not centralized it is decentralized and therefore if you you know if something happens to that main that the quote main repository then you have a bunch of other copies all over the place and that's really really useful so there's like a coordinator node but there's not really an authoritative node if that makes sense. Whereas SVN as far as I understand that that's the model is that there's an authoritative actual repository and then people contribute and pull from that from that repository. To make things especially confusing, a lot of the terminology of SVN has been adopted by Git and I say it's confusing because there are differences there. Git does things a lot differently than SVN does even though there are the same terms being bandied about SVN was quite popular for a while i mean when i first got into linux i feel i mean first of all when i first got into linux i have i i did not interface with code repositories much i mean i would re, i would i would download tarballs and unarchive them and, and compile them for myself that was something that i did very even before i switched to linux i was doing that so to that extent, I, I was I was interacting with source code, but I, I wasn't. I didn't understand at the time the concept of version control. I didn't understand. I think if you had told me about it, I still I probably wouldn't have understood why it was even necessary. Um, so yeah, that that was beyond me at the, in my early days. Um, I do think I probably had like a a copy and paste this command moment or two. There were probably things that I checked out through SVN without understanding what I was doing. But, yeah, I didn't have any real sense of, of what subversion or version control was until a little bit later. So SVN admin is not something I want to talk about. SVN, however, I can talk a little bit about. And, and again, this is one of those, I've, I've said this before, Git has been my version control system for a very long time. I am not really all that interested in changing away from it. So, partly because I'm I'm comfortable with it, but also partly because the world still very much sort of runs on Git. I mean, not the entire world, but you know, the open source development really kind of does run on Git. So the more I know about Git, I feel like the better the better I the better off I am, you know, to sort of um well, the, the better I am positioning myself for, you know, for specialized knowledge. It's just kind of a good career choice, I guess. So um, I'm going to grab a repository from the internet, and because I've been dealing with this application a lot lately, I will do Linux Sampler from linuxsampler.org. And the way that I'm going to do that is I'm going to find a place on my hard drive where I can do this safely or, or conveniently, and do an svn checkout... Which can be abbreviated. Everyone abbreviates it. SVN space CO. You can type out checkout. You can SVN space checkout. You can do that, but everyone just does CO. And then HTTPS colon slash slash SVN dot linux-sampler dot org slash SVN slash. Uh, I'm just going to grab JLSCP, which is the library for controlling Linux Sampler. I think it's probably one of the smaller ones slash trunk, and then space JLSCP. So all I've done there was I've told SVN to check out the repository located at that URL, and then space, and then the name of the directory that I want it to create for me. And if I do an LS, uh, after it does that, I see that I do have a new directory called JLSCP. And if I change directory into my my, uh, repository clone, I guess it's not really a clone, in SVN lingo, but that's what I think of it as. Um, then I'll do an ls, and there's stuff like authors, build.xml, change log, copying, examples, readme, and source. It's a project directory. It's it's code. It's got all the normal things in it. Um, I could get more information. So I'm in my I'm in the jlscp directory now. So I am in a SVN repository. So I could do a well, actually the easy thing to do i guess would be ls-a and that shows you the hidden directories and sure enough there's a .svn folder here just like you would find a .git repository a .git directory in a git repository a wasn't there a .rcs folder or something like that in an rcs um, directory and so on or there- was it a .rcs file i don't know i don't remember um so anyway you could also do svn info i n f o svn space info Shows you your current path, your working copy root path, the u r l from which you know the remote in git terminology the the u r l from which you've you've checked out this code, the relative u r l which seems to be sort of like just the project slash trunk, the repository root the repository repository unique i d the revision four thousand and seven, and so on lots of information including uh the final bit is last changed date so you kind of know what kind of activity has occurred within this repository recently so i mean obviously if if all you did if all you needed was this code so that you could compile it for your system or something then you could just do whatever you needed to do but let's imagine that we needed to make a change to some file i guess uh here is a bunch of code in java you know what let's just do something super easy and just change the readme i mean i don't have access to this svn repository for committing changes so this this isn't going to be a full demo but um i will just kind of go through here and make arbitrary changes i'm just going to delete this whole paragraph i'll 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 capitalize the word license there and I'll capitalize all the headers, that's what I'll do. That's a useful, well I don't know how useful it is, but it's a thing that I could do. Oh, this is longer than I thought. Okay, that's good enough, I've done enough. So I'll save that, and now if I do svn status, it tells me that there is a file in here that has that, that gets prepended with the M letter. I'm assuming that's for modified. And it is, indeed, the readme file. You might think that the next step would be to add that file to a staging area and then to commit everything in staging. It's not how SVN works. So instead, you just commit the file. SVN commit readme. And then I could hit return, and it would prompt me for a commit message. I could say updated the readme file, save, close, and then it's going to contact the SVN server, for which I do not have a password, and so I must stop that part of the demo, because that just doesn't, that does not translate into what I'm trying to do here. Now, the add command is a command, a valid command in SVN, but it's it's used uh, very specifically to add a file that did not exist previously. So if I was going to do, let's pretend like I was going to do a readme.linux and enter the word hello world, and close that file. Then if I did an svn uh, status, it would tell me that there's been one file that's been modified, which is readme, and then there are just question marks in front of a couple of other things. There's a question mark in front of readme.linux, and then there's a question mark in front of svn-commit.to.temp and svn-commit.temp and .backups. So .backups is a directory that I have Emacs make for me under most circumstances containing backup, auto, auto backups of Emacs. So that got created for my log file. In git, I would have that in my .gitignore. Uh, the re- the svn-commit files are... Well, I didn't do my commits, so those never got resolved. I'm going to remove them now just to get them kind of out of my site. And then I've got a readme.linux and a readme. Readme is modified. Readme.linux, big question mark. Well, what it wants me to do is svn add readme... Dot Linux. now I've got an A by readme.linux. So if I do an SVN status, I've got an M for readme and A for readme.linux. M modified, A added. And then, of course, again, I could commit, except that I can't commit to to this SVN repository because I don't actually have permission to do that. So what about things um, where, you know, someone else is working on this code as well, so what about getting updates from from the... From the central rep- repository well that would be SVN space update that looks at at the the big project remotely looks for updates and 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 brings your code into or your, your code base up up to um, up to compliance and of course there's also stuff that you can merge you can get diffs to find out what has changed and so on so on a superficial level, I think probably if if you're familiar with Git you can already see kind of superficially there's a lot of similarities it's just some of the some of the workflow is going to be a little bit different and then conceptually there's there's that difference of there're not necessarily being a central a central um one stop you know final stop for all code all, all code lives on all local machines and while you can coordinate what those lo- those your your local repository gets through some some centralized repository that everyone's pointing to as kind of the authoritative answer, um, it doesn't necessarily contain everything possible to have contained in it um, in, in Git. Whereas SVN, everything that that happens and gets committed goes to that one. Repository, as I understand it. Again, I've never administered an SVN server and I've only interacted with it in the barest of ways with a couple of patches here, a couple of patches there, and a couple of checkouts. In between. So that's about all I can do in this demo, honestly, because there's not um, you know, I just don't have permission to to really do a whole lot with, with this subversion uh, server. So, I think you get the idea. I don't know that there's an argument for SVN in this day and age. I think the only argument at this point is a project is using it, you want to contribute to the project, therefore you will learn enough SVN to understand what you are doing. But I, I don't I don't know that there's a place for SVN anymore. And and I understand that some people could be thinking the exact opposite and just think that SVN is just elegant and and easy to understand and 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 so on, but for me I it's not that I don't understand it, I just I don't see any kind of added benefit to SVN as opposed to Git. And in fact, I see lots of benefits to Git over SVN, primarily in the uh, server setup region. Like the, for, for Git, it's just so well integrated with, S, uh, with SSH that hosting a Git repository and opening it to a bunch of contributors is absolutely trivial. The same stuff that you learned back when you were first learning, excitedly learning about how to do SSH back as a Linux new user, all of that stuff... Applies to Git, like that's all you need to do. So I don't know. That's just really, really nice, and yeah, I think that's. And then there's you know there, there's so many helper applications for Git too for survey for for the service stuff like Gitolite little little things to make you know Git users as it were manageable. It's just such a nice interface compared to spinning up a web server, doing the ht password stuff setting up all the SSL stuff. It's just, I don't know. There's something about all of that that just doesn't make me excited about running an SVN repository. So, I don't know. I'm sure that the system itself is fine. I'm sure that some people really, really like it. Like I say, it used to be, I feel like it used to be the de facto one like it used to be the thing that people used and were used to and in fact i it used to annoy me in git um documentation a lot of times there were there would very often be phrases you know that that horrible phrase like you know as opposed to as how you did things in svn do such and such in git you know or or doing git in doing such and such in git is the same as it was in svn that sort of thing and it's just like Yes, that is meaningless to me if I don't know SVN. Um, I, I feel like we've gotten away from that now as Git has kind of come into its own and just sort of, it is the thing now. Um, I don't feel like I see comparisons to SVN as much as I used to. It used to drive me crazy, though, because I would I would look something up in Git and it would assume that I was asking based on knowledge that I had from SVN. And, and I hate it when documentation takes that approach because it just it, it assumes that you're coming down the exact same path as the person who wrote the documentation and that's just not a fair assumption. So there you go that's everything I know about subversion which isn't a whole lot. It's well documented it's been around forever. So if you run into it I think you'll be able to um to do all of the things that you want to do with it after looking up f- the the specific instructions on you know the, the 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 specific sequence of commands. So I don't know SVN not as excited about SVN as I was about for instance RCS which I just thought was really really clever. SVN probably very clever and I don't mean to be disparaging of it. It's just there's nothing there for me now and and I'm not that excited about sort of looking back at it really because it just doesn't it doesn't really connect for me, but it's an important, you know, an important thing. It's an important uh technology and I think SVN probably did a whole heck of a lot to get people away from, you know, Systems that, that weren't quite as good. Like, I've, I've heard very frequently that SVN was such a breath of fresh air after CVS or, or something. Maybe RCS, I don't know. Um, so I do think that it was a big step forward for its time. But since then, we've, we've taken several other leaps forward. Um, like Git and Mercurial and a couple of other projects, um, that, that hacker, hacker defo was actually just telling me about on Mastodon. So there are, there, there are some really, interesting ways to, to control the, the versions of software out there and, and help other people develop software that i don't think svn is has really a a, a huge a hugely useful position anymore in in open source software could be wrong i don't mean to be disparaging of it it is being managed by apache apache is an amazing foundation it's great that they're continuing the support if you're interested in subversion absolutely go check it out i am not but it was interesting to look back at it i think that's all i have for this episode thank you very much for listening i will talk to you next week good scholastic records, level-headed, down-to-earth. Not the kind to make it up, Wild Story.